0: stairs, and uh, and so the kids are dismissed. Also just want to mention that um, for those of you that, that are wanting to watch the VBS video again or you missed it, uh, it's going to be on Instagram, and so that's, they're going to put that on Instagram so you can check that out as well. Parents, you can pick up your kids at the top of the stairs after the service as well. I'm going to uh, invite Josh to come on up here, but I uh, just want to let you know that over the next couple of weeks, we're going to do a brief series that I'm calling Home Cooking, where we are recognizing that there's there is something rich and meaningful there's something rich and meaningful about having people who have the gift of teaching and preaching and using their gifts as a way to bless the church who who may not necessarily be called to serve in the church on a full-time basis or as a career but nonetheless there is this i think there's a beauty and richness that we can experience together and affirm as the church that god has gifted people like josh with the ability to preach and teach and it would actually, I think, be probably irresponsible for us to to not provide space for them to serve the Lord in this way. And so, I think that this morning we can celebrate and recognize that there's a healthiness in recognizing the role that TBC has that, that, is, that has TBC has had in some form or fashion in discipling people like Josh over the years that he has attended Thornhill Baptist Church. Before we do that, though, uh, I want some of you may not know who Josh is, and so I just want to ask him a few questions just to help us get an idea of who who this good-looking guy is and uh, so we may some of you may not know who he is uh no it's, it's not <laughs> someone behind you surprise um but uh, just to, so we can get a bit better uh, a little bit better uh, picture of who josh is so maybe josh tell us who you are and maybe how long you've been coming to thornhill baptist church at this point
1: yeah for sure Um, So I grew up as a missionary kid, actually, in the Northwest Territories. My parents were missionaries there. Then we moved to Ontario. My parents, my dad was a pastor there, so missionary kid, pastor's kid. Then they took over a Bible camp, so I was a Bible camp kid. Um, So you can decide for yourself if all the stereotypes are true or not. Um, I moved to Calgary about 11 or 12 years ago, um, and I actually came to Thornhill for one year at that time, and uh, probably... Virtually none of you remember me from that one year because it was pretty quick, um, and I remember almost nobody from from that year either. Uh, I was away for about five years, and then I came back um, roughly, I think, eight years ago, something like that, um, and have been here ever since. And you have been involved in the youth
0: ministry for quite a while in, in our church as well. Maybe tell us a little bit about um, how long you've been involved in youth ministry and why you keep doing it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that's the question. Um, I've been, <laughs> I think I was uh, probably kind of leaked be- out there a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is This thing, uh, <laughs> hold on, yeah. Um, uh, Stacy got me involved in the youth ministry about a year after I started coming back to Thornhill, I think. Um, and uh, then I was kind of helping out for a little while, and then I took over the leadership of the youth. I have done that for six years now, and so I got to see a handful of... The youth here go from grade seven all the way to grade twelve and graduate this past year, which was pretty cool. Um, but it's it's fantastic to be able to see the growth in the lives of young people as they go through that growing up stage of their life, um, and I think that's what keeps me in it as much as anything. Cool.
0: I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but one of the one of the stats that exists within churches is is they say that the average youth pastor. Stays in their church for, on average, between 18 and 24 months. So, really, really short window of time that youth pastors are involved in youth ministry in their churches. So, Josh, what a gift! Thank you for your your role and your leadership in the youth ministry. And I just want to affirm that and say thanks for all you do in that way. I also recognize that as a parent, I need all the help I can get. So, what would be, what would be one word of one a word of wisdom that you could Encourage us as parents, or encourage us as a church, to help young people have a deeper ownership of their their faith um, as they go, as they get older and graduate from from junior high and high school.
1: Yeah, that's a big question, and I think it's an important question because as a youth leader, I see the youth for two hours in a week, um, and parents have them the rest of the time when they're not at school or work or doing all these other things. Um, and I think my advice on that front would be to talk to them about their faith, not instruct them about their faith all the time, not preaching to them all the time, but just have discussions with them about where they're at, what they're reading, what they're doing, what they're thinking, how their prayer life is, all those things. And I think as much as anything, that's going to be a contributing factor to their um, success as they move on with their lives. Awesome. I appreciate that wisdom, Josh. Can I pray for you? Yeah, for sure.
0: Lord, I just want to thank you for Josh. Thank you for uh, the the wisdom that he's already shared with us this morning. And pray that you would continue to, uh, continue to use him in our church as he continues to lead the youth ministry. Thank you for his hours of investment in the conversations, the time that he has poured over developing leaders and, and, and caring for uh, and discipling young people within our church. And uh, what a gift. What a gift for your kingdom and for the ways that he has said yes to you, Jesus. Lord, as he shares this morning, I pray that, his, that, that the words that he shares would be from you. And, uh, Lord, that as we receive your truth this morning, that we would be open to receiving uh, what you have to say to us today. I pray this in your name. Amen. That's
1: right. Okay, now the hard part is over. just have to preach now, so that's easier. It's been a while since I've been up here preaching, and it's good to be back up here. Now, Gary is not secretly hiding somewhere in the church, is he? No. Okay. For a moment there, I thought I was going to have my last three pastors all in the pews sitting there watching so dodged a bullet there um or something i don't know if that would have been better or worse i probably also dodged some comments on the fact that i'm dressed more formally than he is which seemed to happen every time i've preached um one more thing gyrus wherever you went next time i have to uh suggest you to play songs that i've never heard before because my voice is already a little bit raspy from you know singing because I enjoy those songs so much. So next time, just, you know, ones I've never heard of would be better. Um, That might be the way to do it. Now, if you're one of the select few who actually reads emails you get from the church, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, you might know that I titled this sermon, What's the Word? Now, I'm a teacher. Let's pretend I'm giving you a quiz. If I said, it's a one-question quiz, the only question is, what's the word? Your answer might depend on... How old you are, where you grew up, the context of your growing up. If you're sitting uh, in this church right now or at home and you're under the age of 26 or so, you might think this is just a general question, like what's up or what's new? What's the word? What's happening? If you've ever heard of the band The Trash Men, you might have a different answer. Anybody know what that answer would be? Some Bird. Bird is the word. That's what they say. On the other hand, if you've ever been running around a professor's house and had to hide from a housekeeper and you jump into a magical wardrobe to hide, maybe you think mum's the word. Maybe. Or maybe, if you grew up in the church, you can think of nothing else apart from the Bible. The Bible is the word. Lots of answers to that question. A few weeks ago, Pastor Zig challenged us to read through a chunk of the Bible over the summer, maybe the Psalms or the Gospels, or Paul's letters, or maybe more than one of those. I knew I was going to be preaching in August sometime, and I knew I wanted to talk about the Word, so I thought, ah, Psalms will be perfect. It'll be easy to find some Scripture passages in the Psalms that I can base a sermon off of. So I started reading, you know, at Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, and bam, verse 2 already, great verse about the Word. But then there was kind of a bit of a drought. It took me till Psalm 19 to get another mention of God's Word in the Psalms. And then after that, there was actually a much longer drought. It was quite a while before I found another mention of the word, but I kept on reading, knowing I would find more passages somewhere in there. Now, uh, I was a little surprised at how little there was as I started that process, but I was not surprised at all when I got to Psalm 119 and realized, oh good, this is as rich a vein of content as I remember and I knew that that was coming, so I made it to Psalm one nineteen. I thought, perfect, this is where I want to park for a while. And so the scripture I kind of based this sermon on was that chunk that Ryan read this morning, Psalm 119, 25 to thirty two, um, and he read more than that as well. There, any any section of Psalm one nineteen you choose talks about the word, and there's lots and lots and lots in there. Um, a, couple of things that were mentioned in that section that ryan read this morning was that the word gives strength and that the word gives life those are some pretty big things let's pray before we get any further here god i thank you for this morning and i thank you for each one who's here in the church i thank you for those who are listening and watching from home um god i thank you for this opportunity i pray that you would um use me this morning. I pray that I would speak only truth this morning and that you would use that truth to impact those who hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we know God's word is important. I hope we know God's word is important. If those few verses aren't evidence enough for you, maybe check out the rest of that chapter, Psalm 119. If you go home and have a little bit of time, read that whole chapter, and you should hopefully see there that the word is important. And if that's not enough, maybe expand a little bit more to the rest of the Old Testament. Second Kings chapter 22, this little kid becomes the king. His name is Josiah, and he rules for 18 years. And then at that point, the high priest is digging around in the temple and finds the book of the law that had been lost. And so Josiah takes a look at it. He's in his mid-20s now. He takes a look at it, and he realizes how far Judah has fallen from where they should be. <coughs> Excuse me, from where they should be. And what does he do with that? He gathers all the people together, and he reads aloud the book of the law. It says he reads all the words of the covenant. Probably quite a bit of reading. That started a lot of reforms and changes in the country, and it was a big part, I think, of why Josiah was ultimately listed among the good kings, one of the very few good kings in the history of Israel or Judah. Then during the rebuilding of Jerusalem many years later after the exile to Babylon Ezra the scribe does virtually the same thing. He stands up in front of all the people and he reads the book of the law aloud from daybreak until noon. Again, a lot of reading. This was the start of a whole new era in the history of God's chosen people and they started it off right. They had their priorities in line at that time. So the book of the law was pretty pretty important to Israel. It's Obvious from reading these things. And that's great and all, but I have some news for you. We're not in Israel right now. We're not in the Old Testament right now. So are those examples still relevant? Why is the word important for us now? Or is it really that important for us now? What's the big deal? So I want to go through four reasons this morning of why. The word is still important for us now. Number one, it's our food. Matthew 4.4 4 says, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Food gives nourishment. It sustains us. And it should be enjoyable. Most of the time it is. Hopefully. Uh, I'm not a foodie. I'm maybe the farthest thing from a foodie that you'll find, um, which is, you know, kind of nice sometimes. Mostly I eat to stay alive. It's something that I have to do, and so I'll eat. Um... I've been described as a social eater. I'll eat with people, go out and eat, sure. But if I'm on my own, it's a big hassle. And I, you know, sometimes I kind of forget for a little while or or don't bother. It's not really that healthy. But I also don't have a palate refined enough to notice most things that people would say are wrong with food. If I could think of a couple examples, um, you know, maybe your salmon is overcooked. Um, Maybe you, you take a bite and you're like, oh, this has been reheated in the microwave. Oh, that's not so good. Maybe your poutine is a little too salty. Um, maybe your duck is a little too salty. Maybe uh, your potatoes are a little dry. Maybe you have some soggy veggies. Maybe your ribs are less than adequate that you're trying to eat. Maybe, I don't know, your steak is a little overdone or underdone. Just a I don't notice most of those things. And that's kind of a good thing. In that case, for me, I think ignorance is bliss in that respect. But that's not how it should be with God's Word. Pastor Zig said a couple of weeks ago, what food is to our stomachs, God's Word is to our souls. The Word is important for life for us. It should be enjoyable as well. We shouldn't be apathetic about it, like I sometimes am with food. We should be interested. We should want it. We should want to ingest it. It shouldn't just be something that we have to keep us going for another you know, six hours or whatever. It should be something we enjoy and desire. So that's number one. Number two, we need it to understand context. I don't know how many of you have heard the question. Maybe some of you parents have heard the question. Or maybe you've asked the question, should Christians have tattoos? And most of you are sitting there right now thinking, oh yeah, there's a really obvious answer to that question. Problem is, some of you are thinking, yeah, it's totally fine. And some of you are thinking, no, absolutely not. There's only one verse in the whole Bible that specifically mentions tattoos, and it's a command from God to the Israelites back in Leviticus 19, basically saying, don't get tattoos. Is that still relevant for us now? Is it still important? Some of you are thinking, well, God commanded it, so yeah, we still have to stick to that. In that same chapter, there's another command that says, don't mix the types of fabrics that you use in your clothes. Most of you are probably breaking that one right now. So what makes one important and not the other? Or are neither of them important? Maybe the whole chapter of Leviticus 19 is kind of irrelevant now. There's another verse in that same chapter, another command from God that says, don't make your daughters into prostitutes. Still seems pretty relevant. Still seems pretty important. So how do you decide which ones are important and which ones aren't? My suggestion would be to get some context. Learn about the situation. Read where they were, what was going on. Why is God giving them these commands? And more than that, maybe check out the New Testament too. Is there anything in the New Testament that has anything to do with some of these commands in the Old Testament that you're trying to figure out, are these still important for us? I think it's really easy to pull out one random verse out of context and just use it for something it wasn't meant for. I don't want to pick too much on the teenagers in that congregation right now but it is kind of my job as the youth leader so um, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of the verse Jeremiah 29:11 anybody a few of you have heard that one I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you not to harm you to give you a hope in a future it's very inspiring it's a great verse it's also not meant for us. God was saying that very specifically to the Israelites who are in captivity in Babylon. If you take any other verse from that same chapter, Jeremiah 29, nobody's going to say, oh, this is God's promise for me. Jeremiah 29, verse 2, or verse 18. Nobody would do that because it's clearly not meant for us. But for some reason, we take this one verse out and we're like, ah, yeah, this is the one. Same thing happens pretty easily with Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I do not think that means what you think it means. Even if it's inconceivable that you'd be wrong about that. Knowing the proper context of a verse is so important. But it's also impossible unless you actually read the context. You have to read the verses around that verse. You have to read the chapter. Maybe read the whole book. Here's an idea. Maybe read the whole Bible. Because the broader your understanding is the more likely you are to be able to understand the context of something very specific. So number one, it's our food. Number two, we need it to know context. Number three, the Word is the original source material. It's better than commentaries. It's better than podcasts or Bible studies or books by Christian authors or devotionals or, I don't know, sermons. The Word is the original Over the past few weeks, I've watched a couple of the Lord of the Rings movies with some of the youth and some of the youth leaders, and that's been fun. Um, But some of them haven't watched the movies before. Some of them haven't read the book before. And so they're asking these questions like, how does this make sense? What's going on here? And so I'm trying to answer all these questions. But it becomes very, very clear, if you watch a movie without reading the book, you're going to miss some things. Some parts have been taken out. Some parts have been added. Some parts have been changed, and you might not even notice unless you know the original pretty well. The more you read that original, whether it's, you know, reading The Lord of the Rings once or twice or three times or read The Silmarillion, read some of the other stuff around that, the more you read of that stuff, the better your basis, your understanding is if you go to watch the movie that's based on all that stuff. And you won't have those gaps, and you'll be able to say, oh yeah, okay, well this is what actually happened, but this is the way they're showing it. And the same is true of getting information from the Bible, second or third hand, without going to the source. You might read a commentary or listen to a podcast or hear a sermon, and maybe some things are a little bit different than what they were in here. You might miss things. Some things might be changed, and it's probably mostly unimportant small things. But maybe there's some big things that were changed that actually changed the plot and changed some of the characters. You might hear a lot about God's mercy, but you hear nothing about his justice. Or maybe the other way around, depending on where and when you grew up. Maybe you'll hear a lot about Paul's letters, but you hear nothing about the minor prophets. Probably not the other way around in that case, I'm guessing. You might hear a lot about the big picture of the Bible and God's master plan through the ages of history, but you don't hear any of the individual stories along the way. Or maybe vice versa. You hear all the little bits and pieces, but you never see. The same might be said for most of the biblical heroes. Think of a few more. Gideon, Solomon, Elijah. Maybe you only hear about the high points in their lives. You might hear a lot about heaven, but there's a good chance more of that is speculation than biblical truth. We studied Revelation in youth this past year, and I think there were some surprises for some people of what's actually in the Bible versus what we kind of just think of as heaven. Maybe you'll be taught about baptism, or about vegetarianism, or marriage, or human sexuality, But are you actually being taught what the Bible says? Or are you being taught someone's interpretation of what the Bible says? Or someone's interpretation of someone else's interpretation of what the Bible says? None of those second or third hand things are necessarily bad. I'm not saying never read a commentary, never read a devotional book, never listen to another sermon in your life. But it's vital that you know the original source material and double-check what you hear against that original source material. The Jewish teachers of the law kind of had this problem. They wrote commentaries and, and books of instruction about the Old Testament, and then they wrote commentaries on those commentaries, and then they taught people based on those secondary commentaries. Every layer they went out was further removed from the divinely inspired Word of God. And the Catholic Church historically had a similar problem. They didn't make the Bible accessible to the people. Only the priests could read it, because it was in a different language. That isn't an issue for us, most of us, most of the time. But do we sometimes act like it is? Do you actually just trust what the preacher is saying, or the broadcaster is saying, or the televangelist is saying Is the word of God? Oh yeah, they've read it, they know. Or do you actually take a look? Actually, here, let me read what it actually says. And compare that to what they're claiming. Which one's true? One more note on this. Within half an hour of our movie ending the other day, somebody misquoted a line from the movie. Rachel turned to me and she kind of mouthed the right line. I think it's this. I said, yeah, yeah, that's the right one. This person said it wrong. But the reason we both knew that is because we had just seen it. It was fresh in our minds. The Bible gets misquoted as often as anything else in the world. If someone comes and asks you, oh yeah, where's that verse, uh, spare the rod and spoil the child? You're going to say, oh yeah, it's in Proverbs. It's not in Proverbs. It's not in the Bible anywhere. Probably the verse you're thinking of is Proverbs 13, 24. It says, whoever spares the rod hates his son but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Same general idea, but it's still a misquotation. And I think it's pretty easy for a misquotation that has the same idea to turn into a misquotation that has a different idea. And that happens pretty often with the Word of God. So, the Word is our food, we need it for context, and it's the original source material. Number four, it's practical for many aspects of life just going to read 2 timothy 3 16 and 17 familiar passage for most of us it says this all scripture is inspired by god and is profitable for teaching for rebuking for correcting for training in righteousness so that the man of god may be complete equipped for every good work it's useful for teaching we can and should learn from the word it teaches us about god who he is how he operates That's important. It's also useful for rebuking and correcting. We can and should be corrected by the word. How easy is it to be taught something that turns out not to be in the Bible at all? And how do you know, unless you actually read it, to see if it's in there? when you discover something that you've been taught and maybe has impacted your life, and turns out, oh, it's not actually in here, the Bible actually says something different, you should be corrected by that. It should change what you're doing. It also says it's useful for training in righteousness. We should be trained by the Word when we read it. It shows us examples of mercy and grace and forgiveness, and if we just look at those examples and leave them in the Bible, that's not really that helpful. But if you allow it to train you, and your life, that's when it makes a difference. It also says the word is useful for equipping. We should be able to take parts of it and say, oh yeah, I know what to do with this, and then actually do it. That's what equipping is. It gives you the tools you need to do your job. So that's just a couple verses from 2 Timothy. How else is the word useful? Well, there's there's thousands of ways listed in the Bible. I'm not going to go through all of them, but just in the New Testament, a few, a few extra examples that helps us avoid or resist or escape temptation. Jesus did that in the desert. First Corinthians talks about that. Galatians talks about that. Ephesians talks about that. James talks about that. 1 Peter talks about that. And other books, too. It also shows us what to do if we fail to resist that temptation. How to ask for forgiveness. Psalm 51 may be a good example. Those couple examples I mentioned before from the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 talks about how reading the word brings joy and blessing. Psalm 19, it brings joy and wisdom and rewards. And then we hit Psalm 119, and there's a huge list just in there. And again, I'll skip a bunch of them, but here are a few. Verses 9 and 11 talks about how the word keeps, helps keep our way pure. Verse 25, it gives us life. Verse 28 gives us strength. Verse 42 gives us a response to mockers. Verse 49, it gives us hope. Verse 105, it shows us the way. Verse 130, it gives understanding. Verse 140, it's pure, which we don't find very often around us. Verse 160, it's truth. We don't find that very often around us either. And Jesus echoes that in John 17, your word is truth. There's a bunch more in there that I skipped, too. So those four things, it's our food, we need the context, it's the original source material, and it's practical. Those all sound good, I hope, I mean, (laughs) hopefully. But how do you actually benefit from it? What do we have to do? And I think the first thing is pretty obvious. We actually have to read it. Pick a time, pick a place. This was difficult for me for quite a while. Um, I kind of finally settled into a schedule um, where... I'll get ready for the day in the morning and then sit down at my little coffee table and sit there and read um, a chapter, half a chapter, or whatever. You have to actually read it. The second thing, I think, is that it's important to talk about it. Because it's really, really easy to just sit and read a chapter of the Bible and then go on with your life and it's gone. Maybe you mention to your husband or wife, oh yeah, I just read, uh, you know, Psalm 42. There was some really cool stuff in there. It impacted me. Maybe you're phoning up a friend. Maybe you have a family huddle at the end of the day. Okay, what did everybody read today? Maybe you send a message to an Instagram group chat and say, oh yeah, check out Deuteronomy chapter 12. It's one of the weirdest books. I don't really know why it's in the Bible, but here's what it was about. You know, anybody have any thoughts? Um, Talking about it, And I think we can all agree that immersion is a lot better than a little sprinkle here and there. Talking about reading the Word, of course. Um, I was with the Montanezes all last weekend out in Drumheller. We were camping there. And so we spent a large chunk of time together. And inevitably, that leads to picking up some phrases, picking up some words, maybe some mannerisms. Um some inside jokes and memories you know these things just happen when you're around people any of you who have spent intense time with others maybe that's camping maybe that's working at a camp maybe that's missions trips maybe that's living with somebody being married probably i assume hopefully Uh, this just happens i had a roommate when i was in university he was from england Um, He was older than me. He was training to be a a pastor at one of the nearby churches, so I lived with him for about a year, and it didn't take very long for me to pick up a few of his English words, phrases, terms. Sometimes his accent would slip in a little bit, but one thing I noticed that really surprised me is I would pick up a book and start to read it, and I would read it with his accent in my head, because that's what I was used to hearing so often, which was kind of cool, actually, because it's a cool accent, but these kind of things happen when you're surrounded by someone or something, when you're inundated with a particular subject or a topic, it naturally starts to permeate you, and you start to express that as well. It happens with movies, too. One does not simply watch a movie without getting certain lines stuck in your head. Some of those lines turn into memes, sure, some of them don't. But when you leave the movie theater, or the stadium, or the arena, How long do you talk about what you just saw and witnessed? You talk about your favorite parts of the movie, the funny quotes. What just happened? Oh, how did this work? I didn't really get this. Man, I really want to see this band again. I really want to go see Phil Collins again. Better show up at TBC on Sunday. (laughs) But it easily, easily gets in your head. And you talk about it for a while. What about when you read the Bible? How long does that stay with you? probably up until about this point, and then it's gone. Maybe. I don't know. You should be reminded of the word as you go through the day. Little things should make us think about it. You see the, you know, stars in the sky, the sunrise or the sunset. Maybe you should think of Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. You're driving to work or you look out your window if you happen to live in the right place, or you go on a hike you see the mountains out there maybe you think of psalm 121 i lift my eyes to the mountains where does my help come from my help comes from god maybe you're driving to work and stuck in traffic or you're just sitting in a mall watching people walk by you think wow there's a lot of unsaved people here in calgary and maybe just maybe you think of matthew 9 the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few thunderstorm happens, you see the rainbow out there, maybe you think about gay pride. Maybe you think about that double rainbow guy from who knows how many years ago. Maybe you think about God's promise to Noah. You're walking along the path one day, and you see a dead lion on the side of the road. You see some honeycomb in its carcass there. Do you think about Samson? Or do you think about... uh, I don't know what else you you think about. (laughs) I'd definitely be thinking about Samson at that point. (coughs) But it's so easy for bits of songs or movies to get stuck in our heads. Does the same thing happen with the word? Maybe it does. Probably it does for some of you. But the more, the better. And that's more likely to happen if we're immersed in it, surrounded by it. So back to my original question. What's the word? The word is vitally important to our lives. But of course, the better question is, who's the word? If you've ever read John chapter 1, you know that Jesus is the living word of God. See, there's more to the Bible than reading the words on the page. It's part of a relationship, or it should be. And the better you know the author of this word, the more sense everything is going to make. I don't know how many of you have ever received a text or an email, um, and you can't quite decide, is this person being sarcastic? Is this a joke? Are they mad at me? How do I interpret this? What's going on? But that doesn't usually happen if you know the sender well enough, right? If you're, if my brother sends me a text that sounds like it's like me, I'm thinking, oh yeah, okay, never mind. he's just, yeah, that's just how he writes things sometimes or whatever. If you know the sender well enough and you're used to how they write, it's a lot easier to interpret the meaning behind the words of you know, I'm a Seinfeld fan. I picked up a book a couple months ago called Is This Anything? It's uh, just a compilation of Jerry Seinfeld's stand-up over the years. So I picked it up. I thought, this is going to be great. Read the little preface, and then I got to page one of the actual book, and I thought, this is terrible. The formatting was so weird. He's got, it's like, you know, a little phrase here, and then kind of a space, and there's like a couple words down here, and then there's a space, and there's like a little paragraph over here, another space. It was like the weirdest formatting I've ever seen in my life, I thought I can't even read this. So I kind of persevered through a page or two and then I clued in oh, this is exactly how he would say it if he was doing his stand-up. His little breaks are the, the pauses in what he would say. And I could identify that because I've seen his work before and I've heard his work before and so I could see, oh yeah, now this makes so much more sense and that made it not only bearable to read but enjoyable to read because then I could picture exactly how he would say it. The Bible can be confusing sometimes. Some parts of it are weird. Some parts of it are difficult to understand. Some par- parts of it are difficult to read in the first place. Some seem like they shouldn't even be in there. But I think the better you know the author and his work, the more sense it all will make. Now, of course, knowing Jesus isn't just about trying to figure out how to understand the Bible better. It's not like, oh, I've got to get to know this Jesus guy so that I can you know, read the Song of Solomon and understand it. It's not really the way it works. If anything, it's the opposite. The whole Bible points us to Jesus. It's here to bring us to him. If you read the Bible, that's great. You should. But if you read the Bible without a relationship with Jesus, it's not really going to get you anywhere unless it gets you to a relationship with Jesus. But if he's out of the picture and you're just reading the Bible for the sake of reading the Bible, there's not really much point. It might make you into a, you know, a more moral or a more ethical person, possibly. Could do the opposite. It might turn you into an isolationist monk. You never see anybody. You never have any opportunity to interact with anybody else might make you into some kind of a religious zealot and you try so hard that you end up hurting people. Or it might turn you into a crusader and you do worse than hurting people because you think that's what you're supposed to do. Having the Word without the Word isn't really that helpful. We know Jesus is the only way to the Father, and without a personal relationship with him, any Bible reading is purely academic ultimately irrelevant. Again, unless it brings you to Jesus. This is an issue with many branches of supposed Christianity today. They have the Bible, and they read it, or at least parts of it, and they use it when it's convenient for them to prove their stance on some kind of a topic. But if they don't have Jesus, it's not worth anything. I should also mention kind of the opposite side of the coin. Some people claim to have Jesus in their lives (coughs) excuse me, but they have no clue what's actually in the Bible. Talk about treading on dangerous waters wherever Micah went. Remember Second Timothy. The Bible is important. Scripture is important. All scripture is inspired by God and useful for all those things. You can't just say, Oh yeah, now I have a relationship with Jesus, so we don't need this anymore. That's not how it works. The better you get to know Jesus, the more you should be able to understand the Bible, and the more you understand the Bible, the better you should be able to get to know Jesus. It can become a cycle, whatever the opposite of a vicious cycle would be. A really calm cycle. I don't, I don't know what that would be. But it can and should work that way. So let's go back to my original question. What's the word? Well, we can find the answer to that question in Psalm 119 as well as a whole bunch of other places. It's God's truth. It's designed to guide us, to nourish us, to sustain us, to enrich us, to strengthen us, to teach us about God, to show us what mercy and grace look like, and to give us life. But the bigger question is, who's the Word? Which is easier to answer through the New Testament. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the Word become flesh. While the Bible is truth, only Jesus is the truth. While the Bible nourishes us, only Jesus is the bread of life and the living water. While the Bible sustains us, Jesus sustains all creation. While the Bible teaches us about who God is, Jesus is God. And while the Bible shows us examples of mercy and grace, Jesus is the ultimate example of both. The Bible is meant to give us life. Eternal life is found only in Jesus. The worship team can come up again wherever they have gotten to. And I'll pray to close us off here. God, again, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for those who are here and those who are listening elsewhere. Um, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you gave us this scripture that is useful for us in so many ways but more than that, Lord, I thank you for your Son who came to earth as a man to sacrifice himself for us, to cleanse us and give us a chance to have a relationship with you. And God, I thank you that we have both those things, the Word and also the Word. But I pray that as we go from here today, something here would, would, would stick with us, stick in our minds, stick in our hearts, and that we would desire to know your Word better and desire to know your Son better.